This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, Avoiding the Summer Slump, Companion Champions, and Drone Delivery Canada. But we begin with how to cope. High anxiety in the new normal. As Ontario edges ever closer to the end of step three, it's an end that could see most restrictions lifted. Companies are starting to strategize about how to safely bring employees back into the office, and the education system is rolling out its return to the classroom protocols, all in an effort to find some sense of normalcy. But are we ready for this? Can we handle re-entry into life as we knew it? Dr. Deanne Sims is a clinical and health psychologist, president and CEO of of Thrive Space Health and Wellness. Deanne, welcome to the show. Good to have you with us on the feed. Thank you. Happy to be here. So high anxiety. Oh, my goodness. What is at the root? What is the at the core of our anxiety right now? I think that transitions are difficult to handle at the best of times. And we need to know that our society and our communities are undergoing yet another round of transitions in terms of public health directives, vaccines, and other COVID-related factors. And so while we are excited to be inching ever nearer to some form of normalcy with being able to be around our friends and our family members, this is still a time of change. And with change and uncertainty comes stress and anxiety. And we've been through this before. 18 months ago, we had to adjust to a life of COVID, and now we're having to adjust again. And one would think that naturally you would enter this next phase, this new normal, with enthusiasm and calm and peace because it's so optimistic, but a lot of us are absolutely dreading these big changes. Yes. So... We know that there are many changes around us, and those changes are having a ripple effect in our lives. So many of us might be looking forward to the fall, but also facing uncertainty about what we might experience in terms of changes to our schedules. Are we going to need to wake up earlier? Are we going to have to commute back to a workplace? We might also have changes to the realities of our life. Do we have to navigate childcare? remote learning, a new school environment, other forms of family support. And so this can really be a time of renegotiating responsibilities and and really trying to find balance in our lives, again, still in the face of great uncertainty. There's also the fear of contracting COVID-19. Even though many of us are fully vaccinated, this Delta variant is making headlines around the world and there are not positive headlines. So there's that fear and anxiety as well. Certainly. I think as the scientific information continues to evolve and the public directive in line with that, it's, it's a time where we're still unsure about how we navigate this new world. So masks, vaccines, distancing, with the changes that we hear from day to day, it can even further complicate the way that we get back to living our lives. So how do we recognize and deal with the fact that we are 
anxious at this point. So what are the points of recognition and what do we say to ourselves and what do we say to the people around us, whether they are our personal friends or our professional friends? Well, I think this is really a time where we need to start small and go slow. So I know for people around me and even for myself as a very social person, I have had some hiccups as I've re-entered my social life. So I know that people have found starting to socialize again is like working a muscle. It's, it's rebuilding some of that muscle memory in our brains and our bodies. And so I found that going into social situations, I have talked more than I would usually talk. I've been more excited than I historically might have been. And I'm more tired afterward. And I know other people who've gone into social situations and have felt almost a bit dampened and, you know, have really struggled to get their feet underneath them and have struggled to, to talk and communicate in the way that they historically would have. So I think we need to be gentle with ourselves and we need to take some time and really acknowledge that we haven't been doing this for a while. So we have to practice and, and see how we're doing as, as we move along. Really checking in, seeing if we need more breaks than we typically would have, um, seeing if we need more downtime, and then just, just taking stock of how we're feeling before and after socializing will really help us to make sure that we are meeting our own needs while we get back to public spaces and shared places. A lot of companies right now are beginning to vocalize their strategies when it comes to bringing employees back into the office. And that's an unusual and unfamiliar setting at this point, having for many people not been in their office for the past year and a half. How difficult and pressure-filled is that when some well, someone thinks you know, I may have to go back into the office. What are my expectations? Why am I feeling, you know, sweaty palms and heavy breathing thinking about this? And how will I respond to and react to my boss? Well, certainly this is a shared fear amongst folks around the globe. So a recent global study found that 100% of the 4,553 workers that they surveyed were anxious about returning to their offices. And people are worried about a number of things, being exposed to COVID, having less flexibility in their life schedules, figuring out commuting and childcare, et cetera. Um, and then also some of the changing rules and policies around vaccination or health status. These are big concerns. And to your point, we haven't been in these spaces for quite some time now. So it's a bit of a fear of the unknown. And I think one of the things that's important is to make sure that we're using our voices and being clear with our employers and with our colleagues about how we're doing. If we don't feel comfortable, if over the span of a couple of weeks we still notice, you know, difficulty concentrating, sweaty palms, a real uneasiness while we're at the workplace, that's where we need to be open with our employers and reach out to support if there are employee support programs or talking to healthcare providers like GPs or psychologists or other therapists, if those supports are available. Let's talk about our kids and back to school. But 
back to the classroom, and there is a difference. So there could be some anxiety for both the students, the teachers, and for the parents. Absolutely. School is yet another territory where there is a lot of heightened anxiety around. Kids are starting to feel that anxiety creep in. Parents' anxiety is at an all-time high over their kids' schooling experiences. And we know that folks are worried. People are worried about whether kids are getting the academic supports that they need, whether they are socially isolated or starting to have challenges or barriers in the way that they are socializing with their peers. And also, again, about their personal health and safety in these environments. And I think that it's a very important time to be transparent, to be having conversations with kids and teens about some of their worries, some of their fears, and helping to problem solve and control what is controllable. And then for all of the other pieces left over, helping them to learn tools to manage some of their worries and some of their anxiety so that the transition in the fall is as seamless as can be in these very strange times. Yeah, and maybe even put an optimistic spin on this. This is an experience for our children that might hopefully will never be duplicated and something that we've not had to go through. But imagine how they're going to learn about life and how to deal with it based on everything they've done so far and what they're about to do. Absolutely. It's a real lesson in resilience for humanity at large. Yes, we have struggled. Yes, we have had some really um, difficult times, and there is a real strength and resilience to our youth, our children, our populace in general in the way that we have navigated this unprecedented time. I think about rings on a tree. So when you slice a, a, a tree trunk, you can see the rings of growth across the life of the tree. And so I think of ourselves and I think if this were a ring for the last couple of years of my life, it might be a bit darker than the other rings or it might be different in some way, but it's still part of me and it's still part of my experience and something that I have come through. Probably a bit dustier on the other side. (laughs) So very quick Q&A before we say goodbye. Is it okay that we're feeling anxious. Absolutely. How do we know when to seek help? If your anxiety is showing up and it's getting in your way in a few areas of life, like socializing, concentrating when you're working or trying to uh, complete a task or when it causes you a lot of distress, that's a time to reach out, to start talking to friends, family, or your health support. Dr. Deanne Sims, clinical and health psychologist, president and CEO of Thrive Space Health and Wellness, thank you for your calming words and encouragement as we navigate yet another storm through this pandemic. <laughs> really, really appreciate it, Deanne. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. 
From new normal anxiety to the stress and pressure of elite competition, there is help. Here's Jim Lang. As the Olympics continue, we watch the world's greatest athletes battle out all the tough conditions in Tokyo on the world stage. Uh, we also find out that athletes battle mental health issues just like the rest of us. To talk more about it, thrilled to be speaking to the owner of Heads Up Mental Game, Coaching and Mind Game, and uh, a, a real leader in sports psychology and the mental health that comes as an athlete and individuals. Brindley Shapiro joining us in the feed today. Brindley, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. I, you know, I, you know, we always view the men and women of the Olympics friendly as almost superhuman, running, yeah. jumping, gymnastics, and everything. And I think what yeah. happened to Simone Biles gave us a reminder: yeah. these are human beings. Yes, you literally took the words out of my mouth because I say that all the time when people ask me about it. There is definitely that notion of. You know, we look at athletes and we kind of expect them to be superhuman. And in a sense, they kind of are. But the reality is we always forget the human factor. And when you strip away the unbelievable, incredible things that they do, at the end of the day, they are human beings with human feelings and emotions and stresses, just like everybody else. And top it off with all of the extra strain, demands, expectations, and pressure that's put on them as an athlete, um, it's a lot to handle. I've talked to hockey players and other athletes before who, quite frankly, yeah. they said they were, um, you know, the best of their team all the way up, and they got to certain levels the first time they faced yeah. adversity, and they struggled to handle it. How do you help an athlete yeah. who's really never failed at anything when they get to a certain age handle adversity for the first time? Yeah, I mean, I see that all the time. And something that I always say, and when I get athletes kind of that come through our company at the younger ages, one of the first things I tell them is that talent is highly overrated. While it's really lovely to have, when you're born with God-given talent, I mean, we see it all the time. And I've worked at every level of hockey. Um, you know, you, you might have a minor hockey player that is amazing, and then they get to the OHL. And then all of a sudden, it, you know, you have to compete at a different level. Or they get to the NHL level, and all of a sudden you have to battle for your spot. So one of the biggest things is really... I mean, adversity is a good thing for me in, in terms of facing it and learning the right coping strategies and mindset and grit to be able to push through that because that ultimately is going to be what's responsible for your long-term success, irrespective of how talented you are. Speaking to Brenly Shapiro, you can get more details about what she does to help you be better at BrenlyShapiro.com and her great Twitter feed at Brenly Shapiro. And you tweeted something a little while ago, and I thought it was interesting. You don't yeah. wake up feeling your best every day. You condition yeah. yourself to give your best every day. How does that translate yeah. to athletics and everyday life for the rest of us, us mere mortals? Yeah, well, I mean, again, comes back to what you said. It's the human factor. We are not machines, right? If we were a machine and we were tuned up, we're going to perform the same way every day. But there will always be variations to human, to human performance, whether it's in life, in sport, or anything that we do. So, it's really training. It's the really mindset. It's a mental game training. You have to train yourself to be able to give 100% of everything that you've got on every given day because, you know, stuff happens in life. You know, you might have family issues. You might have other things going on. We're never going to wake up feeling the same. And then when you move into performance, there's always going to be variables in performance. So your job is to take control over what you can and then let go of what you can't. And the one thing that you can always control is the effort that you put out there. And so that's really something that I focus athletes on, 
um, you know, you got to give your best and you got to train yourself in order to know how to do that and manage everything else and all the noise that's going on in your sport or in your life. You alluded to it earlier that these God-given athletes who can run and jump mm. and just do things physically, 99% of the human population couldn't even attempt. But that yeah. only takes them so far. How do you prepare them mentally yeah. to handle the stress of something like the Olympics? Yeah, well, I think mental game training needs to be as important as physical training. And sometimes I say it's even more important because you can have all the physical training in the world, but if the mind is not strong, then the body will follow the same way. So I really think that that mindset, that mental game training needs to be incorporated as literally like we train the physical, we train the mental, the mind leads the body. So we need to train the mind, you know, some things that I will do, we do a lot of mindset training, just helping them understand how their thinking contributes to their emotions and then ultimately their habits, their behaviors and everything that they do. So we need to train the mind to be able to be powerful and productive um, to understand, to gain awareness into the thinking and what it's doing for you and how do we change thinking. And things like journaling is really helpful just to be able to be in touch with what's going on with you. Meditation has become huge for athletes um, to be able to learn how to control their mind, right? So like I say, the mind leads the body. you got to be in control of the mind in order to produce your best results. You know, Brenly, I, I think of Andre de Grasse winning the gold in the 200 meters and just how mm -hmm. in the zone and how relaxed he looked. Uh, Elite-level basketball mm. players. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. I, I think of Steph Curry taking a three-point shot. It looks so natural. How, do they, how yeah. do they get to that level where they're not surrounded by the noise of the competition and they're just executing what they've trained to do? Yeah, it's, again, it's all about training your mind. And I like to help people train their mind in high-pressure situations and also on a day-to-day -day basis, right? It's like, it's like going to the gym. You can't just do it once and then think that you're going to be really strong. <laughs> so that mindset training, the ability to meditate, the ability to learn how to have control over your emotions, the uh, preparation is key. So all of that stuff needs to be trained on a day-to-day -day basis. These athletes that do it have, you know, they've put in the time and effort, and both mentally and physically, and they've repeated it. Repetition becomes your master. The more you do anything, the better you become. So when you can incorporate that meditation training, and they do a lot of that, like how to control your mind, how to bounce back from adversity, and then they've put in the physical preparation, they've done it thousands and thousands of times before. So when they're out there in that moment, they're not asking themselves to do anything that they haven't already practiced, trained, and know that they're comfortable. Like they know they can do it. So they're just asking their bodies to do what they've done, you know, thousands of times before. Speaking to Brimley Shapiro, mental performance coach who deals in the NHL, the OHL, and athletes all across the world, top-level athletes. You can get more details at BrimleyShapiro.com. And I think of parents, and my wife and I, uh, we had one daughter who was a competitive swimmer, one a competitive gymnast, but we had other parents whose uh, children were at elite level of caliber in their respective sports and that it was a stress on them the parents a stress yeah. on the kid and i always wonder what advice you have for these parents of these young athletes who look like they could be competing on the national stage and for goodness sake summer mcintosh was 14 in the olympics yeah it's crazy it's crazy and it is very stressful for parents i think Sometimes it can be more stressful for the parents than it is for the athletes themselves. Um, and I'll come back to that no control thing, right? You know, you want the best for your kid and you're kind of 
um, on the outside and don't have a lot of control over that. So I think parents need support, too, to be honest, when you're really at that high level. So they need to find somebody or a place or, a, you know, a safe spot to be able to get out their stuff because, you know, they're going to go through a whole level of stress also, and they don't want that being leaked onto their child athlete um, because the kids tend to pick up on, on that. And so we want to really, as a parent, get, get ourselves in check, um, remember, like, why they're doing what they're doing, that who it's about. Um, and definitely, like, we support parents, too. I do tons of workshops uh, for teens and parents of teens to just learn how to be an effective sports parent. And I think that's just really important to do because it does come with a lot of stress and worry and um, investment in your child. So it's a big deal. I look at Simone Biles, even before the Tokyo Olympics, she had a resume most gymnasts could only dream of. She mm-hmm. showed so much guts and bravery to say, I need a break, came back, wins a medal, asked her yeah. resume for what she did for admitting she needed to take a break for her mental health, comes yeah. back and wins a medal. What does that do uh, for the world in general to realize, hey, sometimes you need just to take a small break for your mental health? Yeah, I think it's huge. I mean, I've waited so many years. I've been in this field a long time, and athletes are raised to tough it out, and they get that message from such a young age. It is so crucial for athletes like Simone Biles and other athletes, too, in the NBA and the NFL. They're starting to come out and show that they are human, and it's so important for us and the public, really, to be able to see that, to recognize. Because for so many years, you know, when they were toughing it out, it didn't mean that they weren't experiencing these struggles. It just was taking a really big toll on their mental health and their mental well-being. So the fact that a Simone Biles and, you know, other big athletes are coming out and showing us that they're human and showing us that it's okay and showing us that we need to prioritize it, I think is really um, it's going to be transformative in the way that we approach mental health and mental wellness for athletes. And I think it's so crucial. You need to learn more about what Brindley Shapiro is doing. Go to her website, BrindleyShapiro.com. Follow her on Twitter like I do at Brindley Shapiro. She can help you, and she's helping athletes around the world. Brindley, thank you so much for doing this. I, I, it's just so enlightening and so important, and I'm sure hopefully we'll talk again in the future. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Take care, Brindley. Bye-bye. After the break, telling tales out of school, but it's a good thing. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. The new school year may still be weeks away, but now is the time to focus on avoiding the summer slump. Tina Cortez with a lesson plan. We can all agree the last school year was challenging. Now many parents are worried about what exactly their child learned and their readiness for the next school year. How can you keep kids learning and avoid the summer slump? Well, Telling Tales is a Canadian charitable organization that works to inspire kids to read. Joining us with the how-tos is Susan Jasper, founder and executive director of Telling Tales, and Inyara Aline, the junior ambassador. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Susan, let's start with you. What exactly is the summer slump? Sure. Uh, 
summer swamp is a real worry in the educational academic circles that children may actually slide back in their reading and their math skills if they're um, not, um, you know, exercising those those skills over the summer. So, uh, and we've already had, a, as you mentioned, a pandemic slide or slump. So mm-hmm. and there's real worry that, that kids need to get ramped up here. And how do you brush up on those reading skills? Well, um, for us, uh, the, um, we're, we're really trying to encourage kids to find the joy and the entertainment and the, and the fun of reading just for its own sake. And so one of the greatest ways is to awaken that passion for reading and, um, and, and not, not do it because you've been told to or it's important, but because it's, it's something that just becomes a part of you and you, re- you really, really find it um, uh, one of your most entertaining ways to spend your time. Mm-hmm. Now, Inara, you're 12 years old. You're heading into grade 7. Have you always loved to read? Um, actually, I haven't always been the biggest fan of reading. Ah. I often thought that, yeah, I often thought that reading was more of a chore than a fun, exciting thing to do. But then I got into sort of the Royal Dow books and then graphic novels. And then after that, there was sort of a period of time where I didn't want to read any, like actual chapter books or novels. I was, I would only read graphic novels. And then I was introduced to Percy Jackson, and I got into novels. And now I read all kinds of books, graphic novels, novels, you know, all those different genres and stuff. So, yeah, I definitely wasn't always a fan of reading. I will admit that. So what's your advice to someone who perhaps hasn't found that joy in reading just yet? Well, I guess I would tell them not to sort of just give up and that there is a book out there that they will enjoy, that they relate to and connect to, and that you shouldn't only see it as a chore like I used to. It can be a fun thing, and it can also help you with your, with your skills at school and just in life in general for the future. And I think that it's just really important, and it can help you a lot. And it's fun. Once you find that right book, that right book that you can connect to, <laughs> that, that is about something that makes you happy, you will get into reading, and it will help you, and it will allow you to sort, sort of explore different genres as well. So I think that, yeah, just don't give up on finding that right book and that reading is beneficial in so many different ways. Excellent advice. Susan, are there key authors, perhaps diverse Canadian books, where we can find that inspiration? Thank you for that question. Well, um, we um, consider ourselves a real gateway into that world at Telling Tales uh, through our website. Um, We've created, um, introducing young readers to a world of um, Author, Canada's best authors, illustrators, storytellers who will be part of our festival lineup and supporting that. Um, we've put a lot of effort into creating a, uh, a reading list so you can explore and explore the themes and, and the age level and, and the, um, your, your favorite topics and, and find that book because Anyara is so right. If you, if you haven't discovered the passion for reading, you just haven't found the right book yet. So we're one of uh, a, a trusted resource to to really explore that world. And you mentioned the the, the festival. What can you tell us about it? Well, um, in the past, the festival pre-COVID was more of an in-person thing. But for the last two years, it's been um, a, a virtual presentation, uh, which has been fantastic because it's allowed us to reach out, you know, across the country. And, in fact, we're offering everyone in the York region front row seats, and it's free. 
the registration actually starts August 1st. So here you, we, we've set it up by day, by stage, by age, so it's sort of a, a virtual um, school trip into um, diff a different range of, of talents. And, uh, you know, you'll find everything from riding dragons to uh, <laughs> space trip, crayon adventures. Uh, uh, there's, there's just a world you'll find. And you'll find there's definitely, whether you're avid or a reluctant reader, chances are you'll find something that speaks to you. And Inara, what's your role in the festival? Yes, well, I'm Telling Tales' junior ambassador, and I sort of get to be the voice of kids at Telling Tales, and I get to introduce kids and families to diverse Canadian books and authors. And I have a segment called Inara's One Big Question, and it's been so fun. I get to interview these diverse authors, and get to see their, and I get to read their amazing books, and it's just been really great, and I'm glad that Telling Tales is doing this, because we're sharing more diverse, and it's Canadian books, which I love, and, uh, and it's opening lots of doors to me as well, and I get to learn more about Canadian authors, and, you know, the authors uh, that are right here, so, yeah. And Susan, where did, and why did this start for you? Well, um, I used to work in publishing, and uh, I knew that we, Canada, we really needed to give children uh, their own world and their own platform and not just be the kitty corner in some adult festival. So I, I had this idea that there was a need, and actually I, I was part of Rotary, and Rotary take a, a really strong commitment to literacy, and they helped me get it off the ground about 13 years ago. And it, and it just struck a chord uh, and has become... Um, it's, it's often referred to as Canada's most significant children's literary festival. And this virtual pivoting time has really helped us. We, what we've actually found is uh, a, a huge school market is following us now because it's so much easier for them to access it. So I know we're all out of school now, but for teachers, they're finding us a great resource as well um, to help kids connect with, with really talented and engaging authors. That's great. Inara, can you just share with us what you're reading right now? All right. Well, right now I'm currently reading My and the Robot by Eva Ewing, and also I'm reading Marcus Makes a Movie by Kevin Hart. Oh, that one sounds like a good one. Excellent. Susan, <laughs> one more time. How can kids and parents take part in the Telling Tales Virtual Festival? Just visit uh, www.tellingtales.org. You can find um, our reading list, the Creativity Club, and you can uh, register for the festival that comes up in September. That's terrific. Thank you both for joining us on the feed. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for having us. Jim Lang is next with a walking buddy service. Now, in 2021 in York Region, you would think that it would just be a great time to go for a walk anytime in your community, but not everyone feels safe. And to do something about it to make people feel safe walking in their community, there's an organization called Companion Champions. And thrilled to be speaking to the co-founder and proud Markham resident, Kimberly Clark. Kimberly, how are you? I am great. How are you today? Good. I mean, a little bit of background. How did you and your co-founders come up with the idea for Companion Champions? So it originally started, one of our co-founders' uh, mom, after the London attacks here in Ontario, was afraid to go out by herself for a walk. 
Um, and we just, we wanted to make sure everybody felt safe. So through a few, you know, brainstorming ideas, we came up with Companion Champions. And what that is, is an app on the, next, on the Nextdoor app that you'll find that you can sign up to help others or be a walker um, or ask for help to walk, to feel safe to walk within your community, around your community, whether even if it's not just because of uh, the religion or how you're feeling or the color of your skin. We want you to feel safe mentally, physically as well. So we started this to make sure everybody in the community got out, got walking, and felt safe. Now, when you first heard about these concerns, I know, just thinking about it, I'm a little shocked. Were you a little shocked, too, to think that people didn't feel safe walking around Markham or York Region? Oh, definitely. I've lived here all my life, and I've never once felt unsafe. But I, as a, you know, young white woman, I didn't ever have those fears. So you have to put yourself in other people's shoes. And, you know, unfortunately, these things are going on within our community. You just don't see them on a regular basis. So we don't want anybody to have a fear. We want people to feel safe. We want, especially with everything that's been going on, getting out, getting fresh air and walking is not only good physically, but it's good mentally. And we want to make sure everybody, no matter who you are, feels safe walking and just gets outside. The website is companionchampions.ca. Thrilled to be speaking to Kimberly Clark, proud Markham resident and the co-founder of Companion Champions. What's the response been like so far, Kimberly? It's been actually quite amazing, and it's been it's come from just, a, you know, here in New York region, it's morphed all over Canada now, which is amazing from coast to coast, um, especially with, uh, you know, founders and sponsors with Nextdoor app. It's reached everywhere. And it's also morphed into, a, you know, a whole lot of other things with people offering to help go get groceries and, you know, just take people to doctor's appointments. So it's good that, you know, we started it with one initiative, but it's morphed into so much bigger. It, it, have you learned something along the way being involved in this, Kimberly? You know what I have? It's actually opened my eyes to a lot because, like I said, as a you know a young white woman here in New York region in Markham, I don't you know maybe I thought I knew everything and I thought I saw everything, but you don't, and it definitely opens your eyes and your ears. And when you're walking down the street, you notice a lot more. When you're driving, you notice a lot more, and it's opened up a lot within our community and a lot of people's hearts and a lot of people's doors, and that's all we need to do. You know, and this is so important because I know for my wife and I, going for a walk in the evening, you know, weather permitting, we found it very beneficial, as you mentioned, physically and mentally. Like, we look forward to it every day. You do, you do, and you look forward to seeing to seeing people, saying hi, and just getting to know your neighbors, and you know, seeing the beautiful. We've got so many beautiful parks and walkways here in Markham and within York Region that you know people should get out and see them, and just again, it, like you said, mentally, it's good for you. You get happy. Those endorphins are great for your body. They're healthy, and it's just amazing what it can do. And go to the Nextdoor app on your phone, companionchampions.ca, log on, be, be someone to help people. If you need help, they're there for you. And it, it's, it'll work both ways, right, Kimberly? Yeah, yeah. Kimberly Clark, the co-founder of Companion Champions, thank, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. When we come back, a free app for the environment. Follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. Ann Romer, and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region. Welcome back. 
How about a free app that helps everyday people like you and me decrease our energy consumption, develop a sustainable lifestyle, and be rewarded for it? Okay, you have our attention. The app is called Luta. Its founder is Adil Mahajan. His goal? To encourage environmental awareness and offer a platform for action. Adil Mahajan joins us now on the feed. Welcome to the program, Adil. Good to have you with us. Thank you for having me, Anne. So I'm fascinated. Luta, it's a free app. Tell me about it. Tell me about its genesis. Uh, well, let me start by, uh, you know, making a confession. So <laughs> I was not a climate change denier, but I got to say I did have apathy. And the apathy came, I think, mostly from lack of information as to what is climate change? What can I do about it? Will my actions be meaningful? that I think most of us go through. And unfortunately, I think I may be in majority. Um, so I began my journey to try and investigate what can one do. And that's when I realized that there is a possibility to come up with an app, which is, uh, you know, uh, can be downloaded for free by most users uh, or all users, I should say. And then, uh, get informed to take an action and then uh, if they take that action they get rewarded so that was the genesis of the app that you know i I went through my own journey and your journey you've you've had uh, an incredible experience in the many years that you've been in business in the business of of really energy and power and so let's talk about where that experience and how it has led you to creating and being the founder of the app luta Right. Um, so it, it was during that time that I was uh, the CEO at a utility that I thought that, you know, not only the regulator, but most people in the industry were starting to make that transition to, you know, start producing electricity from uh, renewable sources. Uh, there was a movement, there was a momentum, but it wasn't enough. And I think, uh, and I thought that the best way to do that would be to engage uh, the the everyday consumer and give them the power. Now, of course, when I was uh, in that role, that was in the electricity sector. But from a user perspective, you know, it's not just the electricity that has an impact on the environment. It's their natural gas consumption. It's their gasoline consumption. It's their daily lifestyle. Like, for example, uh, you know, um, things like sustainable fashion, um, things like single-use plastic. So I I wanted to see what would be the way to package all of that and provide the user uh, a platform for information and then get the discussion started. So that was sort of like the uh, broad strokes that we kind of like drew up and then uh, it was uh, somebody, um, you know, in my, in my uh, circle of friends that uh, knew uh, a thing or two about apps, and then the rest is history. So um, an energy guy has now become uh, an app developer, and, and I love it. it. You know, it's teaching me new tricks. It's interesting, uh, your current role as the head of Foray 
Vostra Energy Solutions. You've got interesting and diverse and very powerful clients. When you think about an app, you think about, again, regular folks like me. Uh, So why are you aiming at the general public when it comes to an app like Luta rather than the movers and shakers around the world who have uh, the power to make or break uh, climate change, uh, energy solutions, and distribution? Well, first of all, uh, people like you are the movers and shakers. <laughs> and I got to say, and um, you, you right on, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us, friends of mine, over dinner conversations, both social and professional, you know, it, it, was, it is that apathy that I talked about earlier. That, you know, what can we do? It's really got to be Biden and Trudeau and Xi and Modi all of these political leaders who should make things happen. They should force all of these corporate titans. And guess what? All of these guys are already doing it. What's lacking is, are they doing it because they themselves are engaged in the kind of things that they should be engaged in as individuals like you and me? I mean, they, first and foremost, are no different than you and I, but they have the power to make very big uh policy changes and corporate turnaround of the corporate shit. But I believe that if they themselves were engaged as individuals, and that means all of your listeners as individuals, they start to think about it when they get to their place of work, no matter what their role is, if they brought that passion about climate change and start taking even little, uh, you know, steps, they will be able to, you know, make big things happen. Because I do think that, you know, these small differences, when you uh, combine them, particularly with the, with, the, with, the, with the change of thinking and connection with the climate change and feeling that I am not small, I can make these small differences not only in my individual lifestyle, which when I take that, uh, take that uh, thought process and take that uh, passion to my place of work or my place of policy making at Queens Park or 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 at any um, uh, you know forum, I can start to make big differences. Um, In other words, power to the people, literally and figuratively. And and pun intended. <laughs> yep, exactly. That exactly. So let's. We're on radio, so we're listening to you, and 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 we're listening with uh, great enthusiasm. Can you describe the app and describe what it offers and how we use it? Absolutely. So first of all, you download it for free, and what do you do with it? A couple of things. One, you can first of all take an easy assessment of what your energy footprint is. Why energy? Because it's 65 to 73% of your household impact on greenhouse gas emissions, CO2 emissions, right? So that is your furnace, that is your air conditioner, that is your car that moves you around. So when you do take that assessment, we're not suggesting you make that change immediately, but at least now you have the information as to how much impact you could reduce by upgrading to a higher efficiency furnace, AC, or um, 
an electric car or perhaps a car with a better fuel efficiency if you're not ready to make that transition to EV. So all of that information is very conveniently arranged for you. And, and you know, we took uh, a, a long time to write a short letter, as Twain said, right? We spent a lot of time and effort uh, and to, to come up with an app that could be very quick and easy to get you the information you need. Then, that's not the only thing. So let's say you are a student, and you, uh, or you may be an individual who doesn't own a car. What can you do? Well, we have a store to shop green, where you could buy a thermostat, uh, you know, like an Ecobee thermostat. You could buy sustainable fashion from Matt and Matt, from, from Global Shoes. So all of these, uh, like the shop green section that we've created in the app is with sustainable living and lifestyle in mind. And last but not the least, very recently we added a feature, maybe about a month ago, which allows people to inspire others with the actions that they've started to take or to share with people just like they would do on other platforms like Facebook and Twitter and Quora uh, or Reddit. But this is a dedicated platform for sustainable living. They share what they have read about why do we have these forest fires? What is, is there a link with climate change? And, and what can they do? And what are they doing about climate change? So they can inspire others with discussions or get inspired by content that others are sharing. So the app is a platform for action. Where do we download the app? Where do we download Luta? So you can go to www.lutaapp.com, L-U-T-A-A-P-P.com, one word. Atul Mahajan, the founder, the creator of the app Luta, I got to thank you for caring, number one, and for trying to make a difference and, and really appreciate your time on the feed right now. Thank you, Anne. Thank you for having me once again. A Vaughn drone delivery company, and it's a big deal. Heather Seaman gets on board. Drone Delivery Canada was the first compliant operator of unmanned aircraft in this country, approved for cargo delivery by Transport Canada. Here to tell us more about the company is Drone Delivery Canada's president and CEO, Michael Zara. Thank you for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. Tell us about Drone Delivery Canada and its connection to York Region. Sure. So we are a great Canadian success story. We are in New York Region in Vaughan. Uh, we have uh, been around for a few years, uh, publicly traded for the last few years as well. And uh, we're very excited to be a leader, uh, not just in Canada, but globally from, uh, from York Region. Um, providing our drone logistics solution uh, now from uh, coast to coast. I know it was a busy July, really a busy summer for the company. What are some of the big deals that have come about? Sure, it's been uh, a very busy month and uh, the last uh, few months, actually. We had a a number of announcements. Uh, We announced our fourth and fifth patent. So all of the designs and the technology and the patents and the intellectual property are ours. 
Uh, and then we also announced a couple of uh, new projects and the renewal of an existing project, the uh, renewal with uh, DSV, who is a large logistics company in, in Milton. And then we also announced two new projects, one with the uh, University of British Columbia, uh, working also with funding from TD Bank and another partner, uh, Life Labs, to implement a First Nations drone logistics project in BC, and also uh, a project with Edmonton International Airport, Apple Express, and Zing Final Mile Courier uh, to implement a drone logistics solution at the Edmonton International Airport, which is very exciting. Tell us more about the recent deal with Edmonton International Airport. I understand the drones will be delivering cargo. So how is everything monitored and controlled? How does all of that work? It's uh, it's magic, Heather. <laughs> <laughs> The way it works is uh, in this particular project, there will be a, a drone spot depot, we call it, uh, at the airport on airport property. Um, and there will be a drone spot depot off-site in Niskew, which is a, an industrial park in uh, Leduc County. And um, we'll be flying cargo back and forth between those two depots. And the system runs unmanned automatically, and we monitor from our operations control center here in New York region in Vaughan. Otherwise, the system uh, is pre-programmed uh, with the route, and uh, we're monitoring everything uh, in terms of airspace and weather and safety and security and the exact location of the drones and these sort of things. What happens if there's some sort of glitch in the system, if, if something goes wrong? Well, typically things don't go wrong. It's a, it's a proven system. We've developed the technology and perfected the technology over the last few years. We are certified by uh, Transport Canada, and uh, it's, it's, it's quite a robust and safe uh, and proven uh, solution. But we have the ability uh, to take control from our operations control center in Vaughan. So, for instance, just say there was an emergency with another aircraft in the airspace where we're operating, and air traffic control or the regulator tells everybody to get out of the way, for instance, we can take immediate control from our operations control center here in Toronto or in Vaughan to anywhere around the world and do whatever we need to do to deconflict the situation. So tell the drone to hover and wait or go home or change altitude. So we have the ability to uh, deconflict the situation, but typically uh, it just runs unmanned automatically and everything is uh, safe and disciplined. Tell us about your three flagship drones, the, the distances they can travel, and what sort of cargo they're capable of transporting. Sure. So for this project in, in Edmonton, and the, actually the UBC project that I mentioned as well, um, they're using the, the Sparrow drone, which has been certified uh, by the government for, for quite a number of years now. It has a range of 30 kilometers and a payload capacity of about 4.5 kilograms or 10 pounds. We're also working on a next-generation Sparrow, which has similar specifications but a few new features. And then there's the, the Robin drone, um, Robin XL, which has a range of 60, 60 kilometers and a payload capacity of about 11.5 kilograms or about 25 pounds. Now, those are both electric. And then uh, for longer range uh, and greater cargo, we jump up to the Condor, which is a gasoline essentially a gasoline helicopter, and uh, it has a range of 200 kilometers and a payload capacity of 180 kilograms, or about 400 pounds. Why are more and more companies looking to pivot to this type of technology? What are the benefits? So the use cases are, are really threefold. The first one is 
uh, remote access, where remote access is difficult. And there are, you know, roughly a thousand First Nation, Inuit, and Métis communities in Canada who are typically remote and, and as a result have poor underlying healthcare infrastructure or have uh, unreliable food supply or very expensive food. So being able to reach those communities in an efficient way and a cost-effective way is very, very important to, to us and the communities and, and to the government to fund some of these projects. And then also there are a number of remote communities in, in, in Canada that are non-Indigenous, and then there are mining and oil and gas projects which tend to be remote, and, and access is difficult. And, and you know, courier and last-mile uh, delivery routes are, are for e-commerce and what have you are very, very, very expensive and inefficient. So that's one use case. The other is where, uh, where deliveries are time-critical. So maybe you can get there, but if I can get there more quickly with the drone, you know, time could be saving lives and, and health care for delivering something that's urgent, or time could be money in commercial and industrial application. And then the third use case, which actually came about as a result of the pandemic, is limiting person-to-person -person contact. So maybe you've got a hospital campus, or you've got a, a First Nations community or a mining project, and you want to eliminate outside influences coming in to potentially bring the virus into that area, but you want to keep the supply chain open, drones can do that. So you have a, a contactless uh, supply chain that doesn't uh, involve people. So those are really the, the benefits and use cases. Anything else you wanted to share about your innovative drone technology and what's next for the company? I, I would say, you know, people can take a look at our website. There's a lot of uh, images and, and videos. And if you look for us on social media, I think people really need to see know what these look like because they're a lot, they're a lot different than uh, maybe a consumer drone that somebody would be uh, you know used to that they might buy uh, their child uh, from a Best Buy store and play with it in the park or that sort of thing so um, yeah I mean it's uh, it's a very different uh, kind of drone than, than people are used to more uh, more industrial grade I would say you know we keep the cargo inside the drone we fly from a drone spot to a drone spot which is a very safe secure environment for high value high risk cargo so very different than what consumers might be used to. But if you look for us on social media, you can see exactly what it's all about and, and some great photos and videos. This has been really interesting. Thanks for joining us on the feed. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. That was Drone Delivery Canada's president and CEO, Michael Zara. For more information, check out the website, dronedeliverycanada.com. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the free podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.